Our text for today is Matthew 19, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 15. Let's begin by just reading the text here. Again, Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs to the king for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Well, we've got just three short verses. But the next verses after this are the story of the rich young ruler, and that really needs to be preached on its own. Now, when we come to a text like this, really what we need to do, and and really this applies to every text, we need to ask ourselves why. Why does Matthew include these verses? Why does he include this story? Why these three verses? You know, of all the things that Jesus did and all the things that that he accomplished in his life and ministry, all the mighty works that, that the Lord did, why these three verses? Why does Matthew have them here? Again, we always have to ask that question when we interpret Scripture. We need to understand always three things. We need to understand what is being said in any passage of Scripture. We need to understand why it's being said. What is the author communicating? Why is he saying what he's saying? And then we need to understand what we call the so what, the expected response of that communication. And the why and the the so what are are very closely related, and, and especially in this passage. As the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is preparing them for their ministry. But they still have much to learn. Their values are not yet aligned with his values. They still have so much worldly thinking that needs to be cleared out before they're ready to minister without him. For example, as we saw last week when they found out that they they could not get a divorce in verse 10, they said, "If if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You see, they don't yet understand the righteousness of the kingdom, the, the righteousness that they're called to as citizens of the kingdom. They don't understand the commitment that Jesus demands of his followers. Jesus told them that some to whom it is given would even make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Look at verse 12, kind of partway through. It says there, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, Jesus wasn't there talking about literally making oneself a eunuch. He was saying that some to whom it was given would even go so far as not marrying so that they could focus on the kingdom of heaven. And what we have in in these chapters, in in, in chapter 19 in particular, is there's there's a, a great focus on the kingdom of heaven. See, the disciples, they need a kingdom values reorientation. A kingdom values reorientation. And and we've talked a lot about the kingdom as we've gone through the gospel, but I think it's time for a little refresher here. Ultimately, the kingdom is a future reality. The kingdom is going to be established when Christ returns. The kingdom is the reign of Christ when the Messiah is going to reign and rule over the nations of the world. And if you can get that in your mind, it will be very helpful. The kingdom begins when Christ returns. The kingdom is established when the king comes. Without the king, you can't have the kingdom. And so look just a little bit further down. Look, look at Matthew 19 and, and 27. Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, or literally in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Peter's asking here about his reward. 
What then will we have? We left everything, Lord. What are we going to get? What, what's, the, what's the reward? And when is Peter going to get his reward? I think we know the answer to that. Peter's going to get his reward when the Lord returns. And when Jesus returns, according to this text here in verse 28, then, then when he returns, then he's going to sit on his glorious throne. Now that's not his throne in heaven at the right hand of God. We know that because of the rest of verse 28. When Jesus sits on his glorious throne, then also the 12 are going to sit on thrones and they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And the disciples obviously have not sat on 12 thrones and they have not judged the 12 tribes of Israel. That's all going to happen when Christ returns. And so the kingdom is future and we actually are taught to pray that it would come. In, in Matthew 6 and verse 10, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But now we have to ask here, I think, as we think about the kingdom, we have to ask, how would some people not get married for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? What are they going to do for this future kingdom? In fact, if you, if you just think about that, isn't that a present thing? If you're going to not get married, it's going to be in this time, right? And you're going to do something for the sake of the kingdom. That's talking about something done in the present. Or think of Peter like the rich young ruler. He, he, unlike the rich young ruler, Peter says, hey, we left everything to follow you. We've left everything for your sake and for the sake of the kingdom, we could say. Well, Jesus goes on to talk about in verse 29, he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So we have to ask about the present. The kingdom is future, but somehow we can leave things now for the kingdom, or we can leave things now for Jesus' name's sake. And so look at verse 23 of Matthew 19, just a little bit above that. Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And what I want you to note in these verses is that entering the kingdom is equivalent to being saved. Entering the kingdom is equivalent to being saved. If, a, if it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, it's hard for a rich man to be saved. You see that? Jesus says it's difficult to enter the kingdom and, you know, with great difficulty, like a camel going through the eye of a needle, will a rich person enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples say, who then can be saved? And so saved people enter the kingdom when the kingdom comes, when Jesus returns. And in a sense, we can even say that saved people have entered the kingdom in as much as they've become citizens of that kingdom who are awaiting its establishment. They are, according to Matthew 13, and, and the text isn't in my mind, but they are called sons of the kingdom there in Matthew 13. And so if you understand the future and the present aspects of the kingdom, and, and what I would often call the kingdom plan then I think you're doing well as far as your understanding of the kingdom. You're, you're on your way to understanding the kingdom language throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. And so disciples of Christ, we are to preach the gospel of the kingdom so that people will turn from their sin and follow Jesus Christ and be ready to enter that kingdom when it's established, when the king returns. And so that's a little refresher on the kingdom because, because our section really focuses on the kingdom. Jesus is teaching his disciples to value this kingdom work, to look forward to the reward of the kingdom when the king comes back. And all of their thinking and all of their values need to be reoriented in light of the priority of the kingdom. And we too, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to learn these lessons. 
Now, Matthew has put this here to teach us then about the kingdom. And, and once again, we are learning these lessons through children. We're learning lessons about the kingdom through children once again. It wasn't long ago that we were in chapter 18. And the disciples, remember, were arguing, go back and, and starting in Matthew 18 and verse 1, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And so in verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him, calling to Jesus a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We saw that children in that culture had no social status. And the disciples had to humble themselves and become like children. They had to stop seeking who would be the greatest and who would be great amongst them. And they needed to become like children. They had to stop seeking to be great. And then instead in verse 5, they had to receive one such child in my name. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And the way, they, so again, they were to receive one such child in Jesus' name. And what our text does then is it comes back and it shows that they still hadn't learned this humility. In Matthew 18, one such child was a fellow disciple who had turned and humbled himself or herself. And the child in the midst of them was an illustration of a disciple who, who didn't look that important. And receiving a child, you know, if, if you think about it, receiving a child, it's, it's not going to elevate a person's status. It's not going to increase someone on a scale of importance. But Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom is humble like a child, and they receive other humble people that are like children in Jesus' name. Now, our text in 19, 13 to 15 speaks about literal children. But it also, like chapter 18, it also kind of moves into the realm of disciples in verse 14 where it says, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so we're moving from the literal children to such that are like children, those humble people that are insignificant and have come to Jesus Christ. And so this is here to reinforce this humility that receives the humble and receives those who are lowly, even children. See, if we're going to serve the Lord, we need this same kind of attitude, this attitude that welcomes the least of these, as Jesus says in another place. We need to have that attitude. Now, one of my favorite passages in Pilgrim's Progress, if you guys know that work, Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite passages in that whole work is in the second book, which very few people have actually read the second part. But in that second part, Greatheart, that mighty warrior who's, who's the guide of the company, he's, he's led the company of disciples to the shepherds. And so he has Christiana, the, the wife of Christian, and her children, are, they're with him. And the children are all, or with, you know, with great heart and with Christiana and, and the children are all grown up and they're married by this time. And he has old honest with him and he has this really with, with the rest of them, this kind of a, a ragtag group. Even old honest is kind of this old man. He's not, he's not strong. He's not mighty. He's not great like great heart is. But great heart is leading them and along with them is Mr. Ready to Halt. Mr. Ready to Halt, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Despondency, and his daughter, Much Afraid. And so we've got this ragtag group of the weak being led by Greatheart. And so there's a picture here of, of the weak, and they trust in Christ, but they're far from, from what we see in the mighty Greatheart. They're not these mighty warriors. They're these ready-to-halt, feeble-minded, despondent, discouraged, much-afraid group of disciples that are, are trying to follow the Lord to the celestial city. Mr. Feeble-mind had said earlier, he says, 
Alas, I want a suitable companion. Now, maybe I have to translate this a little bit. He, he wants someone who, who kind of fits with him that he might go with them. And he says to the, the group, you are all lusty and strong, but I, as you see, am weak. I choose, therefore, rather to come behind, lest by reason of my many infirmities, I should be both a burden to you and to myself. I am, as I said, a man of a weak and feeble mind and shall be offended and made weak at, at that which others can bear. I shall like no laughing. I shall like no gay attire. I shall like no unprofitable questions. Nay, I am so weak a man as to be offended with that which others have a liberty to do. I do not yet know all the truth. I am a very ignorant Christian man. Sometimes if I hear some rejoice in the Lord, it troubles me because I cannot do so too. It is with me as with a weak man among the strong or as with a sick man among the healthy or as a lamp despised, so I know not what to do. Now, a lamp despised kind of speaks about something in Job that I kind of left out, but that was Mr. Feeblemind. Mr. Ready to Halt, he walked with crutches. You guys know him? He walked with crutches. And anyways, they're, they're on this journey and they come to the shepherds and here's what the shepherds said. They said, this is a comfortable company. In other words, the, the shepherds, they like this company of ready to halt and feeble mind and much afraid. They're, this is a great group of people. And he, they say, you are welcome. You are welcome to us for we have the feeble as well as the strong. Our prince has an eye to what is done to the least of these. Therefore, infirmity must not be a block to our entertainment. And Pilgrim's Progress has these verse references, Matthew 25, verse 40 there. So they had them to the palace door and they said unto them, Come in, Mr. Feeblemind. Come in, Mr. Ready to Halt. Come in, Mr. Despondency. Come in and, and Mrs. Much Afraid, his daughter. These, Mr. Greatheart, said the shepherds to the guide. Remember, Greatheart is the guide. These, Mr. Greatheart, said the shepherds to the guide, we call in by name, for that they are most subject to draw back. But as for you and the rest that are strong, we leave you to your wanted liberty. Then said Greatheart, and this is the part I wanted you to get here. Then said Greatheart, this day I see that grace doth shine in your faces. And that you are my Lord's shepherds indeed, for that you have not pushed these diseased neither with side nor shoulder, but have rather strewed that, their way into the palace with flowers as you should. And the, the verse reference there is from Ezekiel 34, which speaks about the shepherds and how the Lord was, was judging the shepherds of Israel because they were kind of fighting with the sheep. But I love that you are my Lord's shepherds indeed, because they cared for the weak. And that's really what we're to do. We are to welcome the lowest and receive them in Jesus' name. We're to receive the weakest and help them to follow Jesus Christ, because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, they needed to learn this, and we, we really need to learn this as well. And so we're going to look at our text then under three headings. We're going to see the request of the parents and the rebuke of the disciples. And then we're going to see the reversal of the kingdom. And there's this kind of like reversal theme that, that happens throughout the New Testament that, that things in the kingdom function differently than human wisdom would have it. And so human wisdom would say, we need to get the strong, we need to get the mighty, we need to, to kind of have this great, powerful bunch of people like Mr. Greatheart. But the, the thinking of the kingdom is, is actually very different and we need to be those who receive the weakest and the lowliest and God is going to make them strong and use them. And so the, the, we need to change the way that we think and orient our values around the kingdom of heaven. And what I'm praying this week is what I've been praying is that this text will change our view of children, literal children, and challenge us as well to love the least and the lowest. And so the first thing we see then in our text is the request of the parents in the first part of verse 13, the request of the parents. 
Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Now, Matthew's then, at the beginning of verse 13, it's often vague, and it could have been right after the Pharisees' test. Could have been right after the the discussion about singleness, or it even could have been maybe another day in another town, um, somewhat close by, somewhat on the way to Jerusalem. We're not, we can't be dogmatic with Matthew's then. But the children, whenever this was, children were brought to Jesus. Now the word here is technically little children, and it's actually translated that way in verse um, 14, the same word, but it's, it's little children. But it's often used of children generally. Little children apparently would have been kind of children under seven years of age, seven and under. But it's often used generally just to speak to even older children as well. The the parallel passage in Luke actually says they were even bringing infants to him, like babies to him that he might touch them. Um, But it could have been that there were some older children as well. And so some of these children were even babies. And the fact that these children were brought probably hints at their age too. They were, they were brought to Jesus. They didn't come of themselves. And so their, their parents are, are most likely the they that are bringing them to Jesus. But they, whoever they were, they brought these children to Jesus and, and they were actually bringing them, which implies that there's a, an ongoing process. And we might kind of imagine a line of parents with, with children in hand coming to Jesus, kind of waiting for their turn to bring their child to Jesus. And, and they brought him or they brought them for a specific reason in verse 13, that he might lay his hands on them and pray that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the the laying on of hands with a prayer of blessing was common in Israel. In Genesis 48, 14 and 15, Jacob, who is now renamed Israel, he blessed Joseph's children, laying his hands on their heads. In Genesis 48, verses 14 and 15. In in Numbers 27, 18 to 23, Yahweh had told Moses to lay his hands on Joshua in order to commission him and, 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 and set him up as a leader among the people. In Deuteronomy 34 and verse 9, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so Moses laid his hands on Joshua and God gave Joshua a spirit of wisdom and the people recognized Joshua as a leader and they obeyed his word as they obeyed Moses' word. Now this practice of laying on of hands continued through Israel's history and apparently it was it was somewhat common, somewhat known to to bring children to a rabbi and for him to lay his hands on them and to pray a blessing over the child. On the other hand, commentator Leon Morris says this, he says, we should not take this too calmly. Now, that's not the way we would normally say things. He's from Australia, but to, we sh- he, I, I think what, what Leon's trying to say in his Australian is, is, you know, we shouldn't just kind of take this as a regular practice. We shouldn't, we shouldn't just kind of think, oh yeah, this is what they, they did all the time. This was normal. He says, we should not take this too calmly as though it might be expected in a religious teacher, end quote. And so it happened from time to time, maybe, but we shouldn't maybe think that this was a widely expected duty of religious teachers or something like that. And so the re- disciples, they don't really understand what's going on and they rebuke the people who are bringing the children. Now in later Christianity, just as we continue to think about the laying on of hands, in later Christianity, hands were laid on people for healing ministry as well as for commissioning someone for a special work like Moses did with Joshua. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 6, the, the, um, the six, the, the, the kind of prototypical deacons are, are brought there in Acts 6, 6, and they're set before the apostles, and they, the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on them. In Acts 13 and verse 3, the church at Antioch laid hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them 
on what we kind of think of as the first missionary journey. Paul laid his hands on Timothy, along with some other elders, probably elders of the church of Derby or Lystra, and, and Timothy was given a special spiritual gift on that occasion, according to 1 Timothy 4, 14, and 2 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 1, 6. And when Timothy was called to install and remove elders in Ephesus, Paul told him in 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty in laying in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And so it seems that for Timothy to be too quick to lay hands on an elder, to commission them for that work would be to take part in their sins or somehow to defile himself. Again, Paul says, do not... Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now that idea reminds me of the Day of the Atonement, when the priest would put his hands on the scapegoat and he would confess Israel's sins. This is Leviticus 16, 21 and 22. It says there, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sin, and he he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." And so there's this sense when the the hands are laid on that there's kind of an exchange between the two people. The the sins of Israel goes on the goat. And, um, you know, the, in, in other cases, it seems like the, the goodness of the man of God laying his hands and praying a blessing kind of goes into the person who is prayed for. And so there's this kind of mutual connection that happens in the laying on of hands. And Paul wants Timothy to be pure in that way. Now, we have seen from Jesus that when he lays his hands, for example, on a leper, Jesus doesn't become a leper. Instead, the leper becomes purified. And so Jesus can't be defiled by laying his hands on others. Instead, what happens, it really goes the other way with him and and he blesses them. And so he prayed for these children and he blessed these little children. And what this is then is just an example of love. This is an example of love because it really doesn't do anything for Jesus. It's not going to add anything to him. It doesn't make him even look good in that culture. You can tell that because the disciples aren't at all impressed. They're not going, oh, look at how Jesus loves the little children. They're going, get these little guys out of here, you know, get these brats out of here or whatever. I, I, you know, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But this is an example of love. And Jesus is simply loving the least members of society and praying for them and blessing them. And now let's go and let's look at the disciples' response. In, this is number two in your outline, the rebuke of the disciples. Look at verse 13 again. And then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. The ESV says the disciples rebuked the people. The the text actually more literally says the disciples rebuked them. And it's actually not quite clear if them is the children or if them is they who brought them, most likely their parents. But I think it is. I think the ESV smooths it out into nice English. And I think it is most likely that he the, the disciples rebuked the parents, although I wouldn't necessarily put it above them to also have kind of rebuked the children in a moment like that. Now, the word rebuked is is a strong word, and and we want to notice here that it wasn't just Peter, it wasn't just Matthew, it was the disciples, plural. This seems to be a group effort of rebuking this, this line of people coming to see Jesus. And it's a strong word. It means to express disapproval of someone. In verse 14, Jesus says, do not hinder them, where the idea is don't, don't keep something from happening or, or don't, don't hinder, don't prevent. And so they're, they're, they're rebuking and they're preventing the kids from, from getting to Jesus. 
And, and I, I just wish that we could see this in more detail. I wish we could kind of see what, what did they say? Like, what did they, what did they do in that moment as they're, you know, get out of here, you know, stop bothering the teacher. What, like, what did they say? We don't know. But it would have been interesting to see. But the substance of this rebuke, whatever it was, must have been along the lines that, that Jesus was such a great teacher. That Jesus was such an important person, and, and perhaps even with a sense of the importance of his mission to get to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is kind of viewed as this important, elevated figure. And of course, he is important, and he is elevated, and, and his time is important. But, but the way the disciples are thinking about this is they're seeing Jesus as important, and they're seeing in contrast the children as unimportant and unworthy of his time. Now, I think that to kind of give them a little bit of grace here, I think the disciples are really operating with what at least I would consider very often normal adult perspective. Normal adult perspective with regard to children. And they see then as adults, they see themselves and their concerns as important and they want to protect Jesus' time and they see the kids as a nuisance or they, they see the kids as a bother, or they see the kids as a distraction from the main thing that is on their minds, whatever that main thing is. It's just the children's stuff is kind of, eh, you know, not very important. Our big people stuff is very, very important. And in a way, they're categorizing people on a value scale, and, and these little children, in their view, are not worth the effort, and so now that we have a bit of a picture of the, the rebuke of the disciples and what's happening, let's, let's move on then. And, and we're going to come back and, and try to apply this to ourselves later. But let's go now to number three and let's see the reversal of the kingdom in verses 14 and 15. The reversal of the kingdom, number three. Verse 14 says, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Well, Jesus has a positive and a negative statement. Positively, he says, let them come. Negatively, he says, do not hinder them from coming. And so Jesus is saying kind of positively, leave them alone, tolerate their coming, put up with it. And then on the other side, do not hinder them. Now, the parallel passage in Mark says this. This is Mark 10, 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. He was indignant. And to be indignant is to be angry about something that's viewed to be wrong. And so what Jesus is angry about here, what he's indignant about is that the disciples have this wrong attitude, this wrong perspective towards the children. It was wrong to view the children that way and to rebuke their parents. And, and it actually was so much wrong that Jesus got angry with the disciples about it. And what this shows us then is that Jesus feels strongly about the children coming to him. He feels strongly about it. He wants them to come. He wants to lay his hands on them and bless them. He doesn't want them to be hindered in that. And so Jesus looks at the situation differently. It's not a waste of time for him. It's not a waste of time for him to serve in this ministry with the children. It's not a waste. Jesus does not think that he should spend all of his time with the 12 or with the mighty or with the adults. But then he says something very interesting. He says in verse 14, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, four explains the, the why. Why should they let the little children come? Why should they not hinder them? Why should they stop rebuking these people? And the reason is, is because the kingdom belongs to such. Now, it's important for us to note here that it's, it does not say that the kingdom belongs to these, as if Jesus is saying that these, these particular children are in the kingdom. Jesus is not saying that, that these children are necessarily saved 
people. In fact, most of them would have been too young, and and again, we don't know their exact age, but most of them would have been too young, likely, to even have exercised faith, or at least a, a, a good number of them would have been. Some of them were babies, remember, from Luke's parallel passage. It's not even that Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these in the sense of that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children in general. It is to such belongs the kingdom. And such here refers to people who have similar characteristics as children. Okay, that's what to such is. It's it's people that have similar characteristics to the characteristics of the children in the context. And the, the kingdom then belongs to people that are like these children, that are like children in general. And, and that then brings us back to chapter 18, verses 1 to 5 that we already looked at a little bit this morning, where specifically verse 3, if you want to look back at it, where it says, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the idea, again, then, is that the kingdom belongs to people who have humbled themselves and come to Jesus. The kingdom belongs to people who recognize that they aren't great, but instead that they are sinners who come to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. The kingdom belongs to people like these children who have no status and who others view as a waste of time and a waste of resources. The kingdom is for people who come to Jesus no matter how insignificant they may seem to others or even to themselves. And so there's this connection between what we've seen here and, and these, these people to whom the kingdom belongs are these, these insignificant people that have no status. And, and Jesus is saying, we need to minister to those people, guys. We don't rebuke them and say, don't bother us. Look at our text again. Look at verse 14 there, the second part. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now we have seen, although the ESV translates it a little bit differently, we've seen this exact same wording earlier. And I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Our text would more literally say, for to such is the kingdom of heaven. To such is the kingdom. And that's exactly what we see in Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We could translate that for to them is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Very, very similar construction in the Greek text. Look at verse 10 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the same construction there. And so the kingdom is for insignificant people who come to Jesus. The kingdom is for insignificant people who are spiritually bankrupt. They are poor in spirit. They're people with nothing to offer who come to Jesus. And the kingdom's for people like that who have come to Jesus and now pursue his righteousness and live for him and face various forms of persecution for Jesus' sake. And so can you see the, the different perspectives between the Lord and his disciples here? The disciples see the children as not worth the effort. Jesus says the kingdom is for people that are exactly like this. And then our text continues in verse 15, and it just simply says, and he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, as we begin to apply this teaching to ourselves, there's, I think there's various kind of groups and various ways that we can go about this, various things to kind of talk about. I think first we should examine our attitudes to literal children. Think about your attitude to literal children. After all, Jesus' rebuke was, was for the disciples' attitude towards the literal children that were coming to him. You know, how do you view time spent with children? 
Are they a nuisance to be endured? Or do you pray for them and desire to bless them? Are they a waste of time? Are they, are they, are they a waste of, of your valuable ministry opportunities? Or are they a, a great ministry opportunity? I think we could ask ourselves if we're trying to make a great name for ourselves by being with the so-called important people, or are you content to serve one such child in in Jesus' name? These are the kinds of things that, that we need to ask ourselves from a text like this. Are we content to serve the children, or do we want to be with the so-called important people that are going to kind of help us to propel ourselves and raise ourselves up? Now, I think that there's a, some great encouragement in a text like this. I think it's specifically of the mothers. You know, God has called you as, as mothers to, to spend a great amount of your time in the home with the children. And you spend a great deal of time with your children and you serve them in your home, but it's, it's not a waste. It's not a waste. Your home and your children, that's your primary ministry. That's the sphere where God has called you to glorify Him. And so it's not a waste. It's a, it's an encouragement. This should be an encouragement that, that you are serving such to whom the kingdom belongs. And fathers too, I think there's something here for us as well. How do you view your children, fathers? How do you, how do you view time with your children and opportunities to minister to them and, and be patient with them and put up with them? Do you love to spend time with your kids? You know, ultimately it's us fathers who are responsible to raise our children. Ephesians 6, 4 says fathers, and it doesn't say mothers, although we recognize that, that mothers are going to play a significant role in, in this whole thing as well. But it says to them, their fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that's really our primary responsibility as fathers to ensure the leadership in our home and to ensure that our children are brought up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, that they know the Lord and that they're taught the things of the Lord. And we can't just put that on our wives. That's, that's all of our responsibility. Raising children who know the Lord is a great ministry and a, and time well spent. Now we could also think about this text more generally, and I think we do well to, to do that as well because it wasn't the disciples' children that, that, it was, it was these other people's children that uh, the disciples were dealing with there. And so, so we need to think about children more generally, children outside of our own families. The kingdom belongs to such as these. And we should love children and, and care for them and, and uh, value them highly. Not just our own children, but all children. We should, we should value them highly. We shouldn't squelch their professions of faith. And yet at the same time, we want to ensure and, and help them ensure that they're truly living for Christ and know the Lord. And so we, th we think about how do we think about children in general? Do we notice them? Do we care about them? Or do we just kind of ignore them as these unimportant people that are kind of around? And if we broaden it out even one more step further, and we think of the two such, those like children... We're now thinking of the lowly, those who are weak or the needy or those who are somehow insignificant. Again, the kingdom belongs to such. And what we need to realize as we kind of get this reversal, the, the, these, this reversal of values in the kingdom, what we need to realize is that the Lord loves to use the weak and the insignificant. He loves to, to bless people who are dependent on him over people that have natural strength or earthly status. And so when we think about our ministries, I think we do have to be wise in our use of time, but also we need to, to realize Paul's advice to Timothy. When we think of who should I pour into, where should I spend my time, you know, wh where should we focus, our, uh, the focus of our ministry be, Paul tells Timothy, 
You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will, all, who will be able to teach others also. And so there's a sense in, in this in which we look for faithfulness. What, what we're looking for when we're thinking, who can I invest in? Where can I spend my time well? Is we're looking for faithfulness, not necessarily strength, not necessarily greatness. The kingdom belongs to faithful people who follow Christ and seek to apply his word. Another application that we can draw from this text might surprise you, but I think we should talk about it a little bit. It's actually not from this text, I would say, but it's an issue that, that's often referred to in, in reference to this text, and that is the issue of infant baptism. It might surprise you to learn that this is one of the texts that the Pado baptist comes to to make a case for baptizing infants. The Greek word for child in this text is paidon or paideon, and, and paido, paidon, paido is the baptism of children. Now, our text obviously says nothing about baptism. John and Jesus required repentance in order to baptize someone, repentance for the remission of sin, something that very young children cannot do yet. They, they cannot repent, and in most cases, they're not aware of their sin. But the case for infant baptism doesn't actually rest on any particular text of Scripture because infant baptism isn't in Scripture. And even any good Pado baptist theologian will, will recognize that and, and agree to that. Their case must be made from good and necessary consequences, not from appeal to any New Testament text that speaks on baptism, because again, there are no New Testament texts that speak on infant baptism. And so the way to make the case is by coming to a text like this and, and reading a presupposed infant baptism into this text. And so when it says, let the children come, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom, the Pado-Baptist says, amen, and they, they see warrant there for practicing the baptism of unbelievers, something that Scripture never describes. Now, I know that I'm not going to settle that debate here. I just thought that I should, I should note that. And I thought I would note what one of the, one of my commentators said, David Turner. He says, infant baptism is not clearly mentioned in patristic literature until Tertullian, who opposed it in the late second century. So, everyone agrees that this text that we're looking at doesn't actually talk about baptism. And infant baptism is not actually mentioned until Tertullian in the late 2nd century. Now, that's somewhere about 175 AD to 200 AD. Tertullian lived from 155 AD to 230 AD, and he's the, the first mention that we have in the early church of the practice of infant baptism. And Tertullian says, we shouldn't do it. It's not biblical. But what I want to say here then is that when the, the later early church, not the early church, but the later early church did more and more accept infant baptism, they did so because they thought that baptism washed away sins. And our Pado-Baptist friends, and, and they are our friends, okay, the, these are our Pado-Baptist friends, they, can, they can't point to scripture directly, and so what they often will do is they'll go to church history. But what I want you to know is that, that when we go to church history like that, it's actually pretty late church history and it's opposed. And then even in later church history, when that infant baptism was more and more practiced, it, it's actually a heretical view of baptism in that they viewed baptism as something that literally saved and washed away sins. And so the baptism that our Pado-Baptist friends point to in church history is actually not the same infant baptism that they practice. And so really the argument from church history also falls short, if you could kind of follow with me on that. The only similarity in the infant baptisms is that the infants were immersed in water, and then later on, even later, later on, 
sprinkling was introduced. And, uh, and so the only similarity there is that there was a, an immersion of the infants in water, but the whole view of baptism is different. And so, uh, again, this is one of the, the texts where people are going to come to and try to argue for infant baptism. And I just want you to know that it's really not there as you already saw this morning. And so hopefully that blesses somebody. I think there is a person or two who might need to hear that, maybe even if they're just those who listen online. But let's kind of get back to thinking about ourselves here. When Jesus says, let them come, it was nothing to do with coming for baptism or even coming to him for salvation. They were bringing children to him to have him pray for them and bless them. And all of this again then shows us Really the importance of children. The children are important to the Lord. The Lord cared for them and he loved them and, and we should also adopt that same attitude. We should adopt that attitude of love towards the least of those who follow Jesus Christ. And so with that then, I want to just appeal to the children that are here today. Children, you're, you're here. We're almost done. You've done very well making it through this message. But there's something that you need to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, he loves you. He cares for you. And if he were here today, he would take you in his knee and pray for you and bless you. And he, and he loves you. And he would want you to come to him. He would want you to, to know him and, and turn from your sin and trust in him. He would want you to know that, that you can be forgiven of your sins if you would come to him and believe on him and trust in him. And it's not enough that your parents are Christians. Just because your mommy and your daddy are Christians doesn't make you a Christian. You need to trust in Jesus Christ yourself. And so I would just urge all the children who are here today to come to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive your sin and, and, and trust him and live for him and love him and try to honor him as you live in your homes and as you, as you live with your families. Try to honor Jesus Christ and worship him and glorify him and know that he loves you and know that he will accept you if you come to him. And so an appeal to the children and again to our parents, let's and to really all of us together, let's raise up a godly generation of children that knows the word and knows the Lord. And if we can do that, we will do a great thing as a local church. Because to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would save our children. Uh, we pray that that you would help us to, to, to kind of have that perspective of, of love for our children. We pray that you would help us to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and, and, and to do all of these things that you've called us to do, Lord. We pray that we would be a people that, that understands the value of the kingdom, that seeks to win the lost people to Christ and seeks to uh, conform or be used to conform Christian people more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be a, a people that, that loves the least and the lowest and really sh a people that shows no partiality and that just serves one another for your glory and for your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.